Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. I love this feast. Uh, it's a very late origin, actually. Uh, 1920s, I think. Can you believe that? I am not embarrassed by this one little bit. I don't care if the Lilliputians came up with this yesterday. This is an awesome feast. That is not how we decide whether something is worth taking. Uh, this is ours, and this is a great, great feast. I love it every year. Um, this is, we've prepared for you this week a five-course meal. Uh, and if you missed, you may have missed the first course, which was yesterday. That was the vigil, uh, the vigil of all saints. But this is sort of like a, this is a really special week in the life of the church. It's like a little mini season all centered around the feast of all saints. That's the, that's the centerpiece, the main course. Uh, but it begins with the vigil and a day of fasting to prepare for this, which uh, we actually had a great turnout yesterday, 40 or 50 people here uh, for the vigil. And then today's feast, Christ the King, is uh, set on the last Sunday of October, uh, particularly because it is associated with all saints. That is that great multitude of saints that he is king over. <laughs> and we are a kingdom of priests and kings, and he is the reigning king. And so Christ the King in this feast is associated with all saints, and then, of course, the beautiful uh, and solemn Feast of All Souls, which we celebrate on the very next day and commemorate all the faithful departed. Um, that's four. Um, the dessert comes on Saturday, which is our local custom here, um, not on the liturgical calendar, when we have our yearly All Saints Festival and bonfire, and uh, on, on this next Saturday, we all come together and um, enjoy ourselves and sort of it's the capstone of our, the joy of this, this little season here with these feasts. When it comes to today's theme, um, Christ the King, it's a great preaching day for me, but a very difficult one because I spent from 19, I don't know how to express to you how central this is in my own personal development in my faith. I spent from 1986 to probably 2003 or something with this theme being the central dominant, almost singular formation of my understanding of Christianity and Christology and theology. So it's that central for me. But I would also claim it's that central to the gospel, to the scriptures, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. And it's just everywhere. It just seeps out of everything. And in Matins this morning, I'm giving you homework. Um, so if you weren't here, even if you were here, go back home today and read all the readings from Matins. Just extraordinary. And especially the two Psalms. And then you'll begin to understand how important, how central this is to our faith. 
Jesus is Lord. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. That is the original creed of the first Christians. That is the creed. And it is our creed. They preached the kerygma, the gospel, and their creed was Jesus is Lord. That was their proclamation. That is the original apostolic proclamation of the gospel. Now over the centuries a lot has been added to that simple proclamation. The church has needed and found it needed to explain and clarify and elaborate on that most direct, plain, and clear manifesto of this apostolic witness. Jesus is Lord. We do well at times to return back to the origins. Back to the origins. That's where we often rediscover the essential truth and meaning of things, which can become obscured over time. Things become obscured as they are clarified, often. And that's why we often go back to Genesis. Um, there are more commentaries on Genesis written by the fathers than any other book in the Bible or section of the Bible. Um, I find myself returning to the original story of man in my preaching, catechizing, and pastoral ministry more than any other part of the scriptures, just always there. When we want to think about Jesus, about who he is, what he's about, when we want to study his life, when we have an image of him in our mind, what image of Christ is it that we are drawn to? What stands out in our minds? How does he appear to us? When we study his life in the scriptures, he appears as many different things. He's a shepherd. It's a beautiful, comforting image, carrying us with our broken leg on his back, back to safety. He's a vintner, growing and tending his precious vine. He's a creator, bringing things into existence, a teacher showing the way, a miracle worker setting people free. He is a destroyer of death. He's a redeemer, offering his own life to pay the price of our salvation to deliver us from enslavement from the enemy. He's all these things and more. But the first clear apostolic proclamation to the world is Jesus is Lord. When Thomas touched the glorified wounds still in the body of our Savior, he cried, my Lord and my God. Peter, in that first great sermon on the day of Pentecost, declared to the nations gathered before him, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He also declared in Cornelius' house that Jesus is Lord of all. Paul promises us that if we declare with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. John in his apocalypse, and we heard that fantastic reading this morning in Matins from his apocalypse, he describes Jesus as the apocalyptic warrior lamb. I don't know if you knew, you know, that Jesus was an apocalyptic warrior lamb. The Jews didn't just think of a lamb as a fuzzy little, sacrificial, cute little animal that gives his life. They actually had a whole image of the lamb as being sort of a warrior lamb was uh, like a lion, like we would think of a lion in a way. Um, this is a whole thing in Judaism. And in fact, when John the Baptist cries out, behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, 
I'm certain he is imaging two things at once. He's imaging a sacrificial lamb, which takes away sin through expiation. But he is also proclaiming the apocalyptic warrior lamb, who takes away sin by having his foot on the throat of his enemy, which is the devil and the demons and death and hell. So it includes both of those images. So John describes him saying, they will make war with the lamb. <laughs> See, he's not just a, he's a warrior lamb. But the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. The revelation that Jesus is Lord comes by the Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Jesus inasmuch as he glorifies Jesus as Lord. No one can say, Paul says, Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We also read that God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in the end, every, every tongue will confess both the good and the wicked. They'll all confess it. They won't confess it now, but they will confess it. <laughs> Everybody's going to confess it. Christ, as he comes in his lordship to defeat his enemies, he doesn't, you don't have a choice whether or not he's lord. You have a choice whether you're going to go with him or not. That's your choice. You don't have a choice whether he's going to destroy the enemies or not. He's going to do that, he's doing it, and he's done it. Your choice is whether you're going to align yourself with him and go with him into majesty or align yourself with his enemies and go with them into everlasting perdition. In the end, on the final day of the op Operation Mop-Up, which we're in right now, the leash of Satan will be choked tight and the fruits of his victory will be fully manifest. And he will stand up off his throne just like he stood up when St. Stephen was being stoned and he looked up and he saw Christ. You know, he's seated on his throne, but in that instance, he's standing. It's been suggested, I don't know, this is an idea. Maybe, maybe this is the end of the Old Covenant and the pronouncement of judgment on the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This vision of him standing. Maybe. I kind of think that might be true. Who knows? Anyway, he's going to stand up from his throne and he is going to issue final judgment according to his divine justice. And the wheat's going to be separated from the chaff and every deed's going to be taken into account to the great reckoning. And all of that is what we are confessing. And at that day, on every tongue, this confession, those who recognized him as Lord in obedience and love and those who didn't, on every tongue, the confession will be, Jesus Christ is Lord, from those who love him and from his enemies. You know, Anna Isabel called Byron Lord, I assume. Sarah called Abraham Lord. Caesar's subjects called him Lord. But none of them are Lord, like Jesus is Lord. Byron was a social Lord, Abraham a patriarchal Lord, and Caesar an imposter demigod Lord. But Jesus Christ is the true Lord. So what do we mean by that, Lord? Now let me give you a little background on this term. 
The Jews wouldn't pronounce, as you probably know, they wouldn't pronounce God's name, Yahweh. I am he who is. I am the existent one. They wouldn't say it for fear of blasphemy. And so they began to refer to God as Adonai, which is from the Hebrew Adon, meaning Lord. And when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, the name Yahweh was translated as Kyrios, Master, Lord, Ruler. And in the Old Testament, this term Kyrios is used 7,000 times. In the New Testament, referring just to Jesus alone, because it's used for others too, but to Jesus alone, it's used 700 times. In Gentile antiquity, kings were also called Lord, Master, Ruler. Kings were also thought to be divine. And so this description, even in sort of the pagan circles of Lord, took on a religious connotation. These kings, which were called Lord, were thought to be divine. And so Lord also is not just sort of a a ruler of a nation, but also takes on this religious association. Both in Jewish and pagan thought, this connection between God and king, king and God, divinity and kingship and lordship and ruling. For the Jews, God was their ultimate king, lord and master, and for the pagans, the august king was their god of sorts, or a god of sorts. I mention this because it's all connected to the central message of who Jesus Christ is. And in fact, his final interrogation and condemnation and crucifixion before Caesar. He made himself out to be Caesar, or above Caesar. At the moment, the eternal Logos became a human. This should help us. This topic, I really need one of our year and a half long Sunday school classes for this topic to address it properly, in all seriousness. Don't worry, the sermon won't be that long. Um, it might be a couple minutes longer than normal, but... Um, this, I just, summing up the entire scriptures from beginning to end, I just want to point out two things to demonstrate for you how important, how central this absolutely is to our understanding of Christ and how we should be relating to him. At the moment, the eternal logos, or a moment after the, you know, in a moment, the eternal logos becomes a human, okay. There's a pronouncement made by the archangel Gabriel. Remember what he says? He comes to her. Now, we're talking about the eternal logos about to become a man right now. And this is what it said. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call that his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. That's the message. So now up into this very moment when this pronouncement is made by Gabriel, this is the most momentous moment in all of cosmic history. Without question. This is a bigger deal right now. This is a much bigger deal than when God created the sun and moon on the fourth day. You understand that? Much bigger. Much bigger. And what is the message that the angel announces? That this one will sit on the throne of his father David, reign forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This Jesus, whom you will call your son, will be king and lord 
That's the word that comes at this most momentous occasion in cosmic history up until that point. Now, let's fast forward to the end of his earthly life when we encounter the consummation of this most momentous event in all of cosmic history, this sort of one event there. And Pilate, interrogating Jesus as he is about to go to his death, says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world. And also to be the truth. The truth and tied to him as king. Jesus here at the very end, he brings it back full circle. Back to the message of Gabriel. Who had instructed his mother that he was coming into the world as man in order to return to his majesty as God made man made king. That's the message. God made man made king. God made man made king. That's different than when we talk about in our dogma, we speak of the monarchy of the father within the triune relationships. That's dogma. Within the triune relations, we speak of the unique monarchy of the father. But this feast today proclaiming Christ as king is different than that. We're celebrating a different sense that Christ is king. This proclamation that Jesus is Lord also not only declares that Jesus of Nazareth, Mary's boy, is the eternal God. That's one aspect of calling him Lord, that he is God. But it also declares him as the fulfillment, the fulfillment of all the divinely inspired images of king and ruler in the history of mankind, going all the way back to Adam. Beginning with Adam, and all the way through the story of God in cosmic history, we have images of what a king looks like. And of course, King David, and what we read so much about this morning. It's the epitome of that image. Christ is the fulfillment of all of those things. He's not just king because he's God. He's God made man made king. He is Christ Pantocrator, the ruler of the universe as the glorified God man. And that's the most central icon in most churches, depicting the second person of the Trinity made king. So, how do we think of Jesus? How do we relate to him more importantly? I said before, when we study him or write about him, but really, when we pray to him, when we worship him, when we are drawing near to him, who is he to us in our life? Jesus is Lord. He is eternal God, but he is king. He is ruler and master. What are the key characteristics of a divine king? When we say he is ruler and our master, and we owe him our obedience, we certainly should not be thinking of some tyrant, which is what often comes to our mind when we hear that term, ruler and master. No, he is a benevolent ruler. First, as king, he defeats our enemy, and he brings peace to his subjects. He orders our life in a harmonious proportion so that it is content and beautiful a life in his kingdom. 
He is also the one who provides nurture and sustenance to his subjects. He feeds us. He lays out a banquet before us, a sumptuous banquet, and it is his great pleasure to do so. He derives great delight in preparing for us a banquet to delight us with. And not just in food, but also in treasures. In treasures. As king, he is a gift giver. He loves to give gifts. It thrills him. This image of king as gift giver is beautifully portrayed. And in fact, it is a dominant uh, image of the king in that epic uh, poem, Beowulf. It occurs again and again where kings are described over and again as ring giver or treasure giver. This sort of becomes an identity, a chief identity of who they are as king. That they go around giving, you know, precious gifts, rings and treasures to people. And that's what they enjoy doing. Like that's the essence of what they do. They're not there to just be barking orders at people and telling people what to do. They conceive of their very role as king as giving things away to people, to those who are in need. This image of the king and the image of Christ to delight in nothing more than lavishing priceless gifts upon us. That too is a part of the image of the God made man, made king, who is Lord. So, if we have this clearly in our hearts and minds, and if we see Christ in this way, and we know him in this way, in this world, we should not be afraid. He is the king. He is the reigning monarch. He has Satan on a leash. Oh, but they kill us all the day long. Ha! We laugh. We mock them. Go ahead, kill us. What is that to us? We cannot be killed. We are immortal. We cannot die. Take my goods. Take them. Banish me. Banish me. You cannot banish me from the presence of God who is everywhere. You cannot take the treasures of the kingdom of God which are all mine. That's our attitude. If we find ourselves fearful and anxious in this present world, <laughs> that's not allowed. <laughs> that's not allowed something's wrong okay I understand you know but I am you say okay come to confession we need to set up an appointment you've lost the vision somehow like what about a mother with her seven young sons who are about to be burned at the stake dunked in hot oil eaten by lions she wringing her hands She's saying, sons, be strong, gird yourself up, and go with the name of Christ on your lips. That's what she's saying. How many of us could do that? How did they do it? How did these early Christians face all of this? It's because they knew Christ as king. They knew him as king. We've got to recapture that. We turn... The evening news on it, we're wringing our hands in fear and anxiety. This is not allowed. <laughs> this is not appropriate to be a Christian and to be doing this. Our elder brother is the king. 
He said, you're going to get, I'm going to let them kill you. Don't worry about it. It's fine. You don't really die anyway. You're going to live forever. I'm going to let them kill you, but it, it'll all be good. That's what he says. You'll be blessed. It'll be better. I mean, they understood that so well that the church actually had to kind of correct people and say, look, you can't go like try and get yourself killed. That's not appropriate either. Because so many people were like, you know, here, kill me, kill me. But they were people of faith. We've got to face our day with faith and courage and joy and confidence. Triumphalism. Laugh at the devil. Laugh at them. Mock them. Mock them. Don't wring your hands. There's nothing to wring your hands over. He has made us a kingdom of priests and kings. Jesus is Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.